Welcome to another episode of Wrestling with God. I am Isha Das, the spiritual director of the Assisi Institute in Rochester, New York. And I am absolutely privileged to have Father Casey Cole, a Franciscan priest of the Order of Friar Minors. He entered religious life, I think, around uh, 2012. And you were ordained a Catholic priest in 2019, if my memory serves me uh, correctly. And you're a Franciscan priest. Francis began his public preaching around 1207. And he took a radical vow of poverty and serving the poor. And he did it with so much joy and gusto that he started attracting followers. So I think it was in 1209 that he went to Pope Innocent and received permission to, to begin to live as a religious order. And so you are part and parcel of that wonderful Franciscan lineage. And I think I mentioned to you in one of my emails, I just spent eight or nine days in Assisi uh, on a private retreat. So it's wonderful to have you. Anything that you wanna fill in in terms of introducing yourself? Uh, thank you very much. Great to be here. Uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a good overview. Love St. Francis, love that uh, he was so inspiring to so many people but also love that the Franciscan order isn't just Francis. Um, Francis was an inspiring figure that none of us can live up to. And if you, <laughs> if you gauge who we are based on him, you're going to be very disappointed. 800 years ago, we were let down to Francis. We each bring our own thing. St. Francis on his deathbed said, the Lord has shown me what is mine to do. Let him show you what is yours to do as well. And so we, we all have an inspiration from him, but we're not supposed to be him. I always tell people that we follow the one he followed. So we are Christians and disciples first in the way of St. Francis. And I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's very beautiful. So we're going to hit the ground running, if, if you don't mind. You are a young man. You are an intelligent young man. And you're a good looking young man. So some of my listeners might be saying, why would he ever choose to be a Catholic priest where you have to take a vow of celibacy, uh, poverty, obedience uh, in our world today that might not make sense to a lot of people? So do you want to say what inspired you to move in that direction? Yeah, there's this weird notion sometimes that people think that uh, it's a plan B, like I want get married, but I couldn't. I couldn't find it. That, that's not the choice. That wasn't what happened. Um, I had dated plenty when I was in high school and college. I thought about getting married, but there was a different plan. Uh, and it's not just something that was imposed on, on me. It's something I loved. Uh, this, this is not a life free of love or running from love. It's a life for love. And I found that there are two different ways you can love. You can love with intensity for one person, or you can love in a very broad sense. Uh, and you can love all people and you can devote yourself to that. And, and God's love is both. Um, and sometimes we need people who are open to all people. And that's what I, I called to do. If I were married, if I had kids, I would have to spend most of my time there. Um, but in a fraternity, I have a community life that sends me now forth that uh, the, the vows give me great boundaries to live within. And I think that's so, so important. You can talk about all the things we can't do. But in fact, it opens us up to love in a way that most people can't. Well, you know, it's interesting whether we're talking about Jesus himself or his mother or Francis. Uh, they were all celibate, yet they lived incredibly fruitful lives. They, mm -hmm. weren't, they weren't shut down, constricted, closed down human beings. 
um, they were very fruitful in, yeah. in different ways. And I did a little research on you. You have, for example, a Facebook following or not Facebook, but YouTube following of well over 125,000 people. And you're a chaplain. On just one a, channel. Yeah. The other one, one has 260. Channel. So there you go. And you're a chaplain at a Catholic high school, I believe. Is mm -hmm. that right? So, yeah. yes, um, there are many ways to I, I think the key thing is whatever we do, we do it with love. Yeah. And if we do it with love, then we're going to be fruitful in some way, shape or form. So that's wonderful. I think you so, talked about you know Jesus, Francis and Mary. Uh, and I think with these boundaries, it's so helpful. I always I like to joke and I tell this to, to large groups, you know, I don't want to date you. You know, I don't <laughs> care who you are. You know, don't be offended by that. I don't want to date you. And I've made that decision for myself that I'm happy with the love of Christ and the love of my community. And I don't need to express it in a romantic way. And what it does is it frees me up to have those private conversations where, you know what, there isn't sexual tension here. You don't have to wonder what's going to happen next. I just don't want that. And so I find that people open up a lot more. We have an opportunity to connect because there isn't that ambiguity. Sometimes the clarity is super helpful. Well, you know, I think in our culture, part of what we have lost is the beauty. And I think this is implicitly what you're saying. We've lost the beauty of chaste love. Mm -hmm. Uh, to be able to love someone with boundaries and be able yeah. to love them with a disinterested love mm -hmm. doesn't mean you don't care, but you're not, a, it's not in it. For, you're not in it for you. Become there are no very, attachments, I think is yes. so important. Yeah. And plus the other, I think, implicit thing in what you were saying is then because you have those boundaries, people feel safe. Mm -hmm. Exactly. They, they know you're not on the make. So you talked about your connection to Christ and your love for Christ. And, you know, one of the things that really surprises me uh, because I've always had, you know, Christ has always been and still is central in my life uh, ever since I was a teenager. And for me to know Christ is to love him, uh, which once you really know who he is, how can you not love him? Yeah. But what I hear from a lot of young people, and by young people, I mean 40 and under, mm -hmm. is they have such a, a negative or prejudiced view of Christ. Can you talk about your own understanding of Christ, your own relationship with Christ? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by negative and prejudiced view. Well, it's just interesting. You know, at the Assisi Institute, we really bring East and West together. And so we, we do some yoga, yogic meditation, et cetera. But it's interesting to watch. You bring up the word Christianity and you can see people constrict. Mm -hmm. Or you bring up the word Christ uh, and you see them just constrict. And some people okay. have just said to me outwardly, I, I don't like Christ. Hmm. Interesting. And now um, I, I, then I enter into a conversation with them. Well, what, what do you, have you read the gospels? Oh, no, not really. And Yeah, I, um, I think I. It's definitely see when you talk about Christianity and Christians, uh, that yeah. certainly uh, make, makes me clench up sometimes, you know, because we all yes. have those experiences. Yes. Um, isn't it what, what Gandhi said? You know, I, I just wish your Christians were more like your Christ. I mean, there's something, yeah. something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what I find working with young people, and, and for me, that's high schoolers and a little bit of college students, they have a similar rejection of the church of Christianity. Maybe not so much Christ, but they're so hired, so tired of hearing about Jesus but they've never actually had an encounter with him. And I know that's, that's hard to rationalize. It's hard to understand what does that mean? Do, you know, Jesus coming to a vision or something like that. And for me, it, it's just, um, it's reading the gospels 
and having a prayerful encounter of recognizing that this is a real person who lived and who really loves me and internalizing that. I had an experience on a retreat that was the start of this. It was kind of age appropriate for me at 16. I was given a block of wood. I was told to write on this block of wood everything that I didn't like about myself, every sin that I had, everything that was getting in the way of a good life. And then after I was done with that, we were told to throw it in the fire and just let it burn. And you watched it. It was very, very cathartic. And you know, you're angsty 16 year old. So that the block is pretty filled with stuff. And I knew in that moment that those things weren't just going to magically disappear. But it was a, a powerful visualization of what I knew Jesus could do, that he could take away those things. And if I trusted in him, these things didn't matter. And for me, that was the first real experience of encounter of letting myself be vulnerable enough to say, A, here are my flaws. And B, there's someone who can help me with them. And, and unless you have that vulnerability with yourself and then reaching out to another, I don't think Christ is going to make sense at all to you. All you're going to see is Christianity. You're going to see something that's aligned itself with power, with culture, uh, unfortunately, sometimes politics and partisanism. You're not going to see the person who heals. And so I always encourage people, be, uh, be open with your wounds so that you can actually be healed of them. Oh, that's that's beautiful. So let me let me just take this a little bit deeper, because again, part of our emphasis at the SCC Institute is we teach contemplative prayer, we teach meditation. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit of of what your prayer life is like and how you encounter Christ in the context of of your prayer life? Yes. Yeah, so the thing I I guess I have to do as a priest and as a religious is we pray the liturgy of the hours and so we pray certain hours of the day and it's to keep the day holy so you, you stop your day at some point and you pray some psalms you pray some readings some intercessions and, and you just kind of remember the rhythm of the day um, i do like it i don't just have to do it but one of the things i do that i don't have to do that is very fruitful for me it's called lexio divina so divine reading in in latin and what you do is you read the same passage over and over and over again so it's a very meditative way of reading. And what you start to do when you read it over and over and over again is you start to notice things that were there the whole time, but you, you didn't see before. And you start to ask yourself, you know, what was he wearing? You use your imagination. How was he speaking? Was the sun out? Was it rainy? Was, how's the sand feel on my, my feet? Um, what were the other people doing? How did they react? And you start to really focus on individual words. You know, what, does, what does that word mean? How does that fit in? And so it's a very deep meditation on maybe only five passages. And so for me, it's, it's, it's getting outside of my head and kind of the intellect and moving into the heart of really experiencing what the, the word is. Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna put you on a spot here. Mm -hmm. I probably should have given you this question ahead of time. Uh -huh. If you could describe Christ in three words, Hmm. What would those three words be? And you can think about it and get back to it yeah, sure. in a few minutes if you want. Uh, the, the first word that comes to mind right off the bat is gentle. Um, huh. and, and I don't mean passive. I don't mean um, kind of a pushover, but someone who is um, that comforting, just exactly what you need to, to welcome you in. So a gentle. Um, uh, another word comes to mind is truth. Um, and so someone who can stand on what is right. Um, so I think of the, the three transcendentals, the truth, goodness, and beauty, but there's this sense of truth that this is the right way. Um, and the third one, um, I mean, compassionate comes to mind. That's kind of sort of the gentle, um, 
I guess humble comes to mind, and that's the great kenosis uh, that we read in Philippians chapter two, that even though he's in the form of God, Jesus not deem equality with God something to be grasped at, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, that he came down from heaven, he, he came to be like us. And I think his whole life is that accepting this world and its persecution. Um, and something I, I find very powerful in the Beatitudes is the humility of that, of accepting these afflictions and finding great joy in them and actually finding great redemption in them. So yeah, a gentleness, truth, and humility. That's beautiful. I want to pick up on that theme of kenosis, mm -hmm. em emptying. And let me just connect it a little bit to what we teach, what I teach about meditation. And people meditate for a lot of different reasons and most of them are good. They want to improve their health. They want to have less stress. But what I also say to people that the ultimate goal of meditation is really subtraction. It's about, it's about allowing the divine to empty us so that we can be filled with something that is that transcends us. Yeah. So it's not, and it's not even about having spiritual experiences to put on your belt to, like a notch. It's it's really about emptying. How do you? nurture that kenosis that self-emptying in your own life yeah i mean it starts with just the imagery i love the imagery of kenosis as a breath that it's only you know when you breathe out you create kind of a vacuum in your chest that now sucks it back in but if you hold on to that breath you're gonna die um, and it's kind of interesting that you can only receive new life by giving it away by getting rid of that breath you you're given mm -hmm. life and so um taking that now practically or literally how do you give life? Uh, how do you share with others? So that's charity, of course. So giving of your money, giving of your time, giving of your talent, what can you do to help others? How can you metaphorically, or maybe even literally lay down your life for others? So what are your sacrifices? How are you giving up things that you do truly cherish and make your life better, but use it to make someone else's life better? Uh, I think that's, that's incredibly important. Um, and then just humility of recognizing your place in the world that I'm not a king and I don't need to be a king and I don't want to be a king. I'm a servant. And so how do I find in each moment an opportunity to serve? And that can be doing things for people, but it can also be just the way we talk with one another and how we maybe are attacked or put down or are we put in our place. Do we immediately fight back and demand our place again? Like, how dare you talk to me that way? Um, or do we show gentleness and patience of saying, you know, this probably, this person probably going through something difficult. Why don't I, take the high road? Why don't I go from below and, and serve them and comfort them in their affliction rather than needing to defend myself? It's very much about looking to others' needs before your own. I like to underscore that like Francis Fryer Minor, he, he referred to his fellow uh, Franciscans as the little brothers mm -hmm. and just that sense of humility and, yeah. and, and serving. It's interesting, I, I had an example in my own life of what you were saying a few weeks ago. In fact, I was driving to lead a meditation service at the Assisi Institute and the light was red, but for some reason the guy was honking his horn behind me. Mm -hmm. um, and my first reaction was there's this little flush of anger came up like, yeah. oh, okay, when the light turns green, I'm just gonna sit here. And <laughs> a little passive aggressive, yeah. Yes, but then I caught myself, I caught myself and I just thought that, you know, maybe he had a fight with his wife this morning, maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on in his life that is making him aggressive in this moment. And just that, that sort of emptying of the anger and the ego um, 
just allowed me a moment of compassion. I love uh, the Wolf of Gubbio story. I'm sure. Yeah. So do you want to share? Yeah. Why don't you share that? Yeah. So as the legend goes, you know, it's written you know hundred years after Francis uh, lived. So we won't take it literally, but it certainly captures who Francis was. He comes to a city and finds that there's a wolf terrorizing the city, and it's eating people's sheep and it's attacking the people, and so they're hidden and they're afraid. And Francis doesn't want to tolerate this, so he goes out and the first thing he does is he makes the sign of the cross and he prays. And he goes out to find the wolf. And he finds the wolf and the wolf comes at him, tries to attack him, and he condemns this wolf. He puts it down and says, you are sinning in the eyes of God. How dare you, you know, repent. And then the wolf, you know, stops. And we like that part. I think we like the condemnation. We like the putting people down, pointing their finger like this is where you're wrong. But what, what he really does is he go beyond that and he recognizes that the wolf is hungry and the wolf is lonely. And so he seeks reconciliation. He says, if the people provide you with food, will you stop attacking them? And, you know, it goes to the people as well. You know, if he stops attacking you, will you be friends with this wolf? And he creates this community and they both agree. And as the story goes, the wolf lives a long life as a cherished friend. And when he dies, they have a funeral for it. And I think to your, your situation with the car, and I think so many of our arguments, we like to defeat people. We like to take people who've done bad things to us and say, you've done wrong, bad you, and then end it there. What we should really be worrying about is being peacemakers, those who try to liberate people from their sin and their vices and their their pain and sorrow. And so when you look at someone like that in their car, when you look at someone who's been attacking you politically, when you look at whatever it might be, say, what's going on behind the scenes here? And while it might be a, a really satisfying thing to get that zinger in or to hurt them, it's short-lived. How can I actually understand why they're doing what they're doing and maybe help them out of that. And now we can be friends. Now we can be the, the body of Christ. We can be the people of God. That's what Francis did. And I th obviously that's what Jesus did. And I think that's what we're called to do. Well, it reminds me of one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers that mm -hmm. I, I tell people, if, if you're on a legitimate spiritual path, then a piece, an essential piece of your vocation is to be a peacemaker. Peacemaker. I think that's the emphasis there. Not just peace enjoyers, not just people who run from things, but you actually make the peace. Yes. Yeah. And try to be that reconciling force mm -hmm. um, in society, in your family life, in, in every context. So again, something that you just underscored implicitly, and I think particularly uh, living your life as a, as a Catholic priest, tell me where community comes in for you and because mm -hmm. it's not just me and god me and jesus sure so tell me how community supports you in your ministry and how important that is to you yeah we always like to go how community supports us uh first and that's that's true um sometimes i'd like to say the community is your ceiling and your floor it is your ceiling that you're never is your floor you're never gonna get too low they hold you up great but the community is also your ceiling, never let you get too high. And I, I think if we're gonna talk about kenosis, the community is a great source of that. We have one friar who used to joke that he wakes up every morning and nails himself to the cross before his brothers have an opportunity to do it. For him. <laughs> you know, the brothers can be very difficult and I know I can be difficult, but for me, it's the beauty of, of the fraternity is that it represents the kingdom, that in the kingdom, there will not just be people who look like me and act like me and like the things I like, it's going to be all people of goodwill, all people that God has saved. And that's not necessarily the people I want to be hanging out with sometimes. Right. Um, and so the fraternity offers that opportunity of people who chose this life 
but didn't choose each other. And so, yes, there is a support there. And I will never be alone, even though I'd like to be sometimes. You know, you'll never be alone. You'll never feel abandoned. But I think more so it is um, it is the, the sharpening of swords. It is the sharpening of each other that as we um, rub up against each other, we are made holy in this way, in our humility, in our recognition that I'm not perfect and you're not perfect, but you know, there is one who is that can help us that way. When I lived alone, I feel like I, I thought I could be a king and I thought I could be perfect and I could love everyone. When you're with community, you realize that none of those things are really truly possible on your own. Um, and so I, I like to emphasize the difficulty of fraternity actually, not so much the support, but the ways that they challenge me and hopefully I challenge them. You know, I think that's so important because there is a kind of, I call it a spiritual narcissism that mm. can develop. Um, and, and the more we progress, particularly if people have, you know, mystical experiences or so forth, that, that, that uh, the inflation of the ego is such a, is such a big temptation. So mm. to have people around you who hold you accountable. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, at the Assisi Institute, we have, we have a, a fairly large community and uh, people make no bones about sending me an email. They didn't like the talk I gave or, mm -hmm. and I welcome that. I, I, I need that. And in my own personal life, my wife and I have five adult children and with them, I'm not Isha Das. I'm, I'm, I'm Craig or I'm dad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it keeps me humble. Yeah. It, they don't put me on a pedestal that way. So yeah, there, there's the need for community. And, and even when it's not always pleasant, it's essential. Uh, Carl Jung had a, a statement, a great psychologist, and I'm, I'm going to adapt it to what we're talking about, that God and community don't always take us where we want to go, but they take us where we need to go. Mm -hmm. For sure. It's a big difference. Yes, yes. So just to shift gears a little bit, I know I'm not trying to go down a negative path, but you, you must have to deal with this. I have to deal with it with people because even though I teach yoga and I'm, I'm a yogi, quote unquote, I'm, I'm still a Catholic. Mm -hmm. And people will sometimes say to me, well, how, how can you belong to that terrible institution mm -hmm. with, you know, with the sex scandal, et cetera? How do you handle that both personally and how do you process that with people? Yeah, so it's always with compassion and always with understanding that this has been a great hurt for a lot of people and, and continues to be. So it's not just something of the past. It's something that still needs reconciliation. I, I think as best I can, I throw away any defensiveness. I realize that when people are getting upset and they're attacking me, they're not really attacking me, Father Casey Cole. They don't know me. I'm what I represent the church and I represent something bigger. And so keeping that at the fore is very helpful for me. Um, but also having having empathy um, to realize that people have been legitimately hurt and can I feel the pain that they feel rather than just trying to fix a problem and move on. Um, because I think sometimes we like to keep things at bay, we like to put our walls up and it's maybe a problem with the clergy and, and certainly with, with our bishops who made some major mistakes is that it was only about protecting liability and protecting image. And it was never about realizing and feeling themselves what people went through. And when you forget that, then you're not a shepherd anymore. Um, and so I, I just try to tap into the emotions that they, they have and try to help them where they are. 
hopefully bringing them to greater reconciliation and hopefully maybe dispelling some myths that are out there as well, if, if that's the time and the place. But if not, being a listener. That's beautiful. This is a, a funny question, and I think I know what your first answer is going to be, so I'll, I'll throw it out there. If you could have a meeting with Pope Francis, now the first thing you would do, I'm sure, is that you would listen mm -hmm. to what he has to say. Sure. What would you say to him? What questions would you ask him? I'm a big fan of Pope Francis, so yeah. um, what you know beyond listening, which would be the first thing. What what questions would you ask him, and/or what what would you say to him? I think my my first thing that comes to mind it's it's kind of a joke, but it is a legitimate soapbox thing for me. Getting into the weeds of theology would be restore the order of the sacraments. So as Catholics, we go generally speaking baptism, then first Holy Communion, and then confirmation, and we, we that's just the way we do it. But we've only been doing this for about a hundred years for the previous 1900 years for the most part it was in a different order and this is a mess and i hate it and everyone needs to fix it and so i would say <laughs> restore the order let's baptize confirm and eucharist in that order and i say do it all at the same time like we used to do and like eastern orthodox church does yeah so that's my my inside baseball like fix this pope francis um i i think probably more personally what i would talk to him about and what i'd like to listen I think one of the, the biggest issues of our church right now is how we interact with and incorporate LGBT uh, people um, and, and their concerns and their needs. And he's someone who has spoken a little bit about it. Uh, he's shown more actions than actual uh, doctrine and speech. He's been um, probably misinterpreted quite a bit, but I would, I would like to get some guidance from him of what the appropriate way to engage with people and listen and what, what room we have um, in our church really, um, for, for people like that. Um, cause I, I don't see a whole lot of great direction. I see most Catholics falling upon party lines and, and giving kind of extreme answers. I would want to hear what he has to say about that. It's a fascinating thing that we still struggle with as a society. I would say it's one of our biggest problems now, but clearly Jesus struggled with this as well, or they, they struggled to interact with him, which is that we, we think that interaction with someone is an endorsement of them. You know, yes. oh, you ate with that person. Oh, you do you know what they did last week? It's yes. just such a ridiculous uh, idea that we can't see the person for who they are in, you know, and you and me as well and all people for all of our goodness and all of our, our flaws, all of our vices and virtues, but just to see them as a person and not necessarily an endorsement. And we see this in politics too, where you can't even talk with someone, talk about someone because, oh, well, you know, they support this or that. Um, there's so many ad hominem arguments and so many periphery kind of, yeah, what about isms without just saying, but we're just having lunch. You know, we're just sitting here and talking and I'm recognizing the goodness in you. I think there's a lot more room for that in our church. Yeah. And one of the little tools I borrowed from my psychotherapy practice, kind of taking a, a direction from Carl Rogers was just listen and listen doesn't mean you agree but right. you're, li you're listening and two things happen if you really listen a I always say you might learn something that you didn't know mm -hmm. and b the other person is going to be much more willing to listen to you if you listen to them without an agenda to take a you know to paraphrase the prayer of St. Francis, which I know didn't originate with Francis, but captures his spirit. 
you know, seek to understand, not to be understood, is yes. the first. Is the first, I think, spiritual Christian uh, responsibility in this context is to really listen to people. Well, Pope Francis talks it all about all the time with evangelism. You know, he he yes. makes fun of proselytism as as just a waste of time. You know, trying to go yeah. and convert someone. Evangelism, evangelism is about walking with people and listening and having empathy and it's going to take a long time and those encounters are so important but as you say people are going to be much more willing to listen to what we have to say once we've had that relationship and i i have to imagine that jesus attracted people not because he proselytized but because he made contact mm -hmm. you know some connection with their soul their heart their being yeah and and people are so hungry. We have so much communication with, uh, with very little communion between people. Yeah. And I, I have to think that part of Jesus's genius, part of why he attracted the followers that he attracted is because he made some kind of real deep contact with them. Yeah. I had and a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago, and, and they were of an older generation, and they were looking at our, our world and thinking, and speaking to me and kind of exhorting me as a preacher, you know, you need to let people know that if they don't follow Christ, they're going to hell. Like they need to know what <laughs> the penalty is. And, and there's truth in that, right? I mean, Jesus certainly talks about towards the end of the gospels, Matthew 23, Matthew 25, we definitely get these woes. We get these if, and, you know, statements. And so I don't want to discount them, but, but to that point, it's at the end of the gospels only after encountering people and healing and feeding and and sharing meals with them and preaching good news and so i think until people have had an encounter those final statements are just going to be like yeah whatever you know i think it's what you say when people cringe when they hear christ i think if someone you know, holds up the sign you know if you don't have christ you're going to hell that's not going to mean anything um i've to, as i i was alluding to before i think you start the other way around I think you start with hell in, in a way and say you, you start with your own wound, you, your own sinfulness, your own problems. You look at this world and say, there is so much division and despair right now. I can't fix this. And then you say, but there's Jesus. There's a way out. And, and that is the, the way to evangelize. Let's give you food. Let's give you healing. Let's give you comfort and inclusion in society. And then we'll get to what happens if you leave. Um, yes. That's the correct order. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. One of the great plagues in our society is um, ideology. What, mm -hmm. what I tell people, we just put it, I'm not saying put aside truth as you understand it, your best understanding of truth, but that ideology, it's like a lens that keeps us from really, again, making contact and hearing the other person. Yeah. And I think letting go of the ideology is a form of kenosis. It's an emptying mm -hmm. so that we can be really present. It's interesting, you know, at the Assisi Institute and in my former professional life, I did a lot of work with recovering alcoholics. And, and again, we have a number of recovering alcoholics and drug addicts who come to the Assisi Institute. And if if I talk to them about hell, they know, they say there is a hell. I, I was in it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, what I tell people is that, in a sense, whenever we forget God, whenever we're, we've lost truth, beauty, and goodness, and we're, we're kind of imprisoned within our narrowness, that's the beginning of a hellish experience. So hell is very real. Sure. But, but again, the antidote is to, is to break in and to allow the light to come in.
Yeah, I think Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, and I think yeah. we can experience those tastes, those foretastes in the Eucharist, in the sacraments. Yeah. We can taste and experience a, a, a little bit of the fullness of God, and if that's true, then I think we can also taste a little bit of the absence of God as well. Absolutely. So maybe one more question. Maybe we'll be a few more, but one, one more. Just we've been talking a lot about Christ. And I know that Christ, the visible image of the invisible God, he's, he's God incarnate. Mm -hmm. But to talk about God at a, at a sort of different level, if you had to give three words for God, for, for mm -hmm. the Godhead, however you want to say that, the Father, um, mm -hmm. what would those three words be? Um, I, I, first word comes to mind is authority. Um, I think, you know, the, the lawgiver, the one who defines the one who, um, is the, maybe the giver of truth, truth being Jesus. He's the one who does that. Um, the, the sender, um, so the one who sends people on missionary, we know the two missions, Christ and the Holy Spirit. So God is, I don't want to say static, but God is the, the father is the one who sends out on missions and returns, but God is God, who God is the father. Um, um, but then, I mean, almost just father is good enough. I mean, there's something to that word father. There's a reason that he identifies in that way that we've used that throughout the years is, um, not, not because we looked at our own relationships and projected in God, but because God is the archetype of that perfect relationship of yes. the one who cares for us as children, the one who guides us and protects us, the one who teaches us the things that we shouldn't know or we, that we didn't know. Um, and so, yeah, I would say father is, is just a perfect way to describe the father. Yeah. I had a conversation with a, a young man just a few weeks ago and we were talking about the authority of God and, I, and he, again, he cringed. Mm -hmm. So I said, think of it this way, that God is ultimate reality. God, God mm -hmm. is the really real. And so when we pattern our lives according to the really real to ultimate reality, then that is authority, but it's not, it's author. The, the word authority, the word author comes from the same root. It's, 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 God as authority is the one who authors creates life mm -hmm. and is, is the really real ultimate reality. So to be in right relationship with the authority of God is really just to be aligned with reality. Yeah. I think there's often an imbalance. It's not that people reject the idea. I mean, some maybe do, but I think it's an imbalance. Right. You get only one perspective. And so I like to balance it out and it helps me understand people. Um, there was an author a number of years ago and I'm forgetting his name. I, I think I know who it is, but I don't want to say it just in case it's wrong. But um, he had three modes of theology. There's A, B, and C. And A is what we often think of with Christian, particularly the, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which is that, that God is the lawgiver. Um, and the problem with sin is that we broke the law. And so what do we need? We need a defense attorney to come save us. Okay, so that's a perspective of God. And it's very stoic God. The B model is God is the truth giver. God is what is true. And so what is sin? It's lie. It's accepting an unbelief. It's accepting something that is not true. So who do we need? We need someone to come and give us truth, to remind us what is true. The third model is um, God is the creator of history. God has a vision and God has a way that we wish should go, literally a way. And so what is sin? It's going the wrong way. It's ruining history. It's taking the timeline and pushing it a different way. So who do we need? We need someone to get us back on track. 
And so the cru crucifixion is an action. It's something that um, reshapes history. And, and I think all three of those are so very important. And I see people operating under those three models without realizing that they're operating under those three models. Right. And, and I think you see certainly like liberation theologians would be that C and you'd have, you know, someone like Thomas Aquinas would be very B and that, that very truth and very heady. You have kind of um, canon law, very A. Can we throw any of those out? No, of course not. But I think if we only emphasize one, you miss some of the other really important aspects of God. Yeah, one of the things that we emphasize at the Assisi Institute and from the first letter of John, we often say this, that God is love. But, mm -hmm. and that's absolutely true. I mean, any, any word we use for God ultimately is going to be inadequate. But mm -hmm. if we have to use a word, we'll use the word that the Bible uses, love. However, the qualification is, I always say, don't reduce love to something sentimental that... Mm -hmm. Uh, love is that force of the spirit within creation, within time and space that will do whatever it needs to do to evolve us. So if, you know, speaking like um, in a very gentle tone of voice, like Mr. Rogers, if that's how love will man, if that's going to evolve the situation, that's how the spirit will manifest. But sometimes it will manifest as fierceness because fierceness is needed to evolve the situation. So yes, God is love but we can't have a, a limited sentimental understanding of what that, what that means. I know that my parents punished me because they loved me, not because they yes. want to see me suffer. Right. And, but sometimes yes. they showed compassion and mercy because they loved me. Yes. Yes. So that love has many, many faces and we can't reduce it to just one image or one icon. So I, I think we'll, we'll move towards a wrap up. Anything final that you want to say, Father Casey? I really encourage people to look at the Beatitudes. I think especially if you're unfamiliar with Christianity or you're familiar with a particular type of Christianity, go to Jesus's words in Matthew 5 and look at the model he has for good Christian living, what it means to be blessed, what it means to be truly happy. It's not happiness that the world can give. It's not money. It's not comfort. It's not safety. It's not security. It's not being liked. The, the happiness that he offers is weird. It's poverty. It's hunger, it's being persecuted and, and sit with that. Why would that be the case? And ultimately I'd like to say three things. One is that it creates a greater dependence on God and that's true blessedness when we rely fully on him. Two, it gives us greater empathy with other people who are suffering and it creates a greater community. Isn't, isn't that blessed? And third, maybe most important of all, it gives us a focus on what really matters, which is the kingdom of God and being there and not this kingdom of earth that it certainly is fading away, but certainly is filled with a lot of evil and a lot of selfish, uh, superficial things. When you live truly the Beatitudes, you start to realize that some of the things you worried about before aren't that important at all. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. Yeah, I and particularly specifically with the Beatitudes, what I remind people is the word blessed. And many, many years ago, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I did take Greek and the word blessed can be translated also blissful. So there's this paradox. Again, it's the self-emptying. It's surrendering to God, which creates the happiness, the bliss, the joy that we all long for. Yeah. Um, so, and when we make bliss or joy the goal, it's always beyond our grasp. I always tell mm -hmm. people happiness is not the goal of life. Uh, but when we make truth, beauty, and goodness, and love in this selfless 
self-emptying the go, the par this paradoxical thing happens. And we find that we are peaceful, we are joyful, and that mm -hmm. we have the joy of the spirit. And bringing that all the way back to Francis, that was one of the, you know, one of the characteristic, one of the ways he's often described as, as a joyful saint. Um, so again, this has been wonderful. I want to encourage uh, all of the people listening to look you up on YouTube. Father Kate, if you look up Case, Father Casey Cole, OFM, um, your YouTubes will come up. Is there a website that you want to share? That people yeah, you can go to breakinginthehabit.org. All right, breakinginthehabit.org. And let me just say to the listeners, if you've liked this, please give it a like, make a comment, send me your questions. And please subscribe. And Father Casey, I just really from the bottom of my heart want to, to thank you. Uh, you are a bright light. And uh, when I first stumbled accidentally across uh, you, know, you on YouTube, I was just delighted um, to have found you. And I listened to you. And uh, you just you, you bring truth, beauty, and goodness, truth and love together in a, in a wonderful way. So. Um, God bless, Godspeed in your ministry, and I hope you have many, many years because the world needs people like you. Thank you, Thank very, you very much. much.